Good morning, everybody. Man, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad to be back. Thank you for all of you who asked about it. We had a great week away, and we, we certainly missed all of you, and I'm happy to be here. We're in this series, This Is Us, and if you're newer here, this is a great time for you to be here because this series is all about who we are as a church and what is really important to us, the, the values that bring us together and make our heart beat a little bit faster, the things that are important to us, how we do things here. And so if you've missed any of the series, you can go back and catch the podcast on iTunes. Just look for Connection Christian Church. Or you can simply go to ConnectionChristian.org, our website, and the sermons are all there, the messages. So far, what we looked at is we're in this together. We are a family, and we share life, not just on Sunday morning, but we just do life together. And we've talked about how we love one another and serve one another, and uh, we serve our world and our community. We also talked about how we have a global message, and that's why we partner with other people who are in other places in the world doing the same thing we're doing here helping people find and follow Jesus. So we talked about our global missions partners. We promote unity in this church. That's very important to us. We know that life happens, and so we're going to get sideways with each other. We're going to have disagreements. And, you know, arguments and disagreements are, you know, they're just inevitable. But disunity is unacceptable. So we talk about how we work things out with each other, and that's very important to us here. We embrace generosity. On a personal level with each other, we're generous toward God, we're generous with our community, and that's just, we're imitating Jesus when we do that. Uh, last week, Aaron Jackson, if you were here, just a great message I've heard. Uh, we make each other better. We want to leave each other better than we found each other. We mentor, and Aaron brought out that you don't have to be perfect to be a mentor. You just got to know something more than the other person that you're with, and so you can mentor each other, and that's an important part of who we are here. That's why we try to put our best and most gifted teachers in our children's ministry and with our teenagers, and for all ages, we just want to teach the Bible and teach Jesus, and so that's important to us. Today, we're going to look at where we came from, our heritage as Connection Christian Church, and in the bigger scheme of things, the what we're part of is something called the Restoration Movement. And this is not just a history lesson, though. This is about how do we today, you and I, interact with the other Christians in our community and in our world. If you go, go to John 17, would you? You may have your smartphone already out. You can grab the Bible app if you want to. And if you don't, if you've got paper version, John, this is not 1, 2, or 3 John. Those are toward the end of the Bible. This is just the Gospel of John. And this is what we're going to find here when you get to it is a prayer that Jesus prayed on Thursday night before he was killed on Friday. And we have his prayer recorded in the Bible, what he prayed. I want to read a few words out of that because I get goosebumps every single time I think about this. Jesus prayed for you and me. He prayed for everybody, including us, people who would eventually gather to learn about him and to maybe even become his followers. So I'm going to start in verse 11, and then we're going to jump down to verse 20, John 17. Jesus said, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, talking about his followers, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them, that's us, by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now jump down to verse 20. My prayer is not just for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now I've given them the glory that you gave me, and they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they be brought to complete unity and to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
which is an awesome prayer. He was praying that all the people through the disciples of Jesus, through the apostles, through them teaching about Jesus, that everybody that they influenced would be united the same way that Jesus is united with the Father. There would just be such a unity that the world who didn't even believe in God or care about Jesus would be like, I like those people, and I love the unity that they have, and I want to be a part of that. Jesus literally prayed for that for 2,000 years now. I look at the world, though, that we live in today, and I'll just be honest with you. The Christian world today doesn't look a whole lot like what Jesus prayed for that night. It's kind of disappointing. There's a Christian scholar and author named Leonard Sweet, and he recently said this on Facebook. In 1900, there were 1,600 Christian denominations in the world. Not churches. There were 1,600 different denominations. In 2012, there's over 43,000 And then he goes on snarkily and sarcastically to say, aren't you glad you're in the right and true one? (laughs) Because everybody thinks we're the ones who got it right and all the other Christians have got it wrong. And I'm not talking about just churches that are separated by geography, like you've got to have different cities, you've got to have theirs. I'm talking about people in the same region who we are all still worshiping the same Jesus, but we've got ourselves divided off because of different beliefs. Uh, here's an extreme example of what I'm talking about. A little picture is taken. I believe this was down in the south. They've made, them, made sure we are the church, not of the den of thieves. This is the house of prayer Pentecostal. Apparently there is another church that's the house of thieves church. I don't know why you would call yourself. And it's just like, oh my gosh, is this really what Jesus had in mind? Or like this little comic here. We, we find ways to, um, to ignore what Jesus wants and separate ourselves like this. The teacher is saying, in case you can't see it, this is it's just all the different where the denominations came from. The teacher is pointing to them and says, this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And the student is saying, Jesus is so lucky to have us. <laughs> And you might think this is joking. I have talked to people who actually have said things like this, not being joking, not sarcastic. They actually feel this way. Every church thinks we're the ones who've got it right and everybody else is doing it wrong. Now, here's the shame of the matter. Jesus prayed we would be united. Why? Because on any given Sunday... There are a whole lot more people who are one heart attack away from eternity without Jesus and without heaven than there are gathered to worship Jesus. There are a whole lot of people who don't believe in Jesus, and then they look at how Christians can't even get along with each other, and that's one of the excuses they use to avoid you know, working some things out with God. There's so much at stake here about how we interact with all the other Christians who are doing the same thing we are doing. They're not the enemy. Satan's the enemy. We're on the same team here, but we don't always act like it. And so this is what we want to talk about this morning. What do we do with all the other Christians who are in another brand, another denomination, another kind of way of thinking about things, but they're still Christians? And, we, and this is what I love about the restoration movement of which the Christian church and Church of Christ is a part. What we think is, and you're going to hear more about this in a little bit, we're not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. We don't go, well, I'm a Christian and we just like try to find all the things that we have common ground with other Christians and say, let's find that common ground and work together. And um, so at this point, what I want to do for the rest of the teaching time uh, is turn things over to Ginger Bowden, who's one of our members. And you know, Ginger, if you've been here around here for a while, one of the most gifted teachers we have and probably one of the most gifted teachers I know. Ginger's right now in the midst of her doctoral work, and she's actually taking a course on the restoration movement of which we're a part of. And I've asked her to just 
to come share with some of us some of these things, these ideals of the restoration movement, some of the history of it. And she's going to, she's a wonderful teacher. You're going to learn a lot. I hope you'll take some notes in your worship folder. But at this point, I want to turn things over to Ginger, and then I'll come back and talk a little bit more. Thanks, Brian. So I'm going to spend a few moments talking about our heritage and our history in the Restoration Movement. It's also known as the Stone Campbell Movement, and we'll talk about why that is in just a little bit as well. One thing that's um, always been a part of our beliefs is that we're not a denomination. You'll see us called non-denominational churches. And you may wonder, well, why is that? Why aren't we a denomination? Well, by definition, a denomination is a group of people who share beliefs and practices. And we share beliefs, but we don't have set practices that all of our churches are required to follow. For example, we just took communion. One of our core beliefs is that we take an open communion every Sunday that we're together. But in terms of how we do it, the practices, that's not required to do a particular way. Even within our own church, sometimes we pass the tray and take it as it comes. Sometimes we hold it and take it all together. Sometimes we go to stations. Sometimes we have homemade bread. We can do all different kinds of things in practice. And that's part of what makes us a... uh, movement, a fellowship, not a denomination. We don't have those kinds of rules. At the time that um, the restoration movement started, and this would be in the late 1700s and early 1800s, denominations had tight control over their people. And it wasn't just at the level of denomination, it actually went a level of detail even further. So it wasn't just I'm a Methodist or I'm a Presbyterian. There were specific issues that would divide even amongst Presbyterian that I believe in this and I don't believe in that. And you had to swear as a minister when you were ordained, you swore allegiance to a creed that specified which of the those you believed. And once you swore allegiance to that creed, you really separated yourself from everyone else. You couldn't preach in a church that wasn't part of your creed. You couldn't give communion to someone who wasn't part of your creed. You really drew a wall between you. And it wasn't... um, it wasn't a gentle thing. It was a lot of animosity between those groups and who believed in what. And as difficult as that would have been for the church hierarchy for ministers, it was much harder for boots-on-the-ground Christians. Because once you got outside of the city centers where there were more churches and you came out, especially in the American West, there were very few churches and mostly uh, Ministers had like a a geographic area that they would ride through and they'd work at one church for a while and then another. You had to wait until the preacher from your particular little division within your denomination came out there to take communion. So you could literally go years without taking communion. You could go years without hearing the word of God taught to you. If someone died, you could bury them, but you couldn't have their funeral until the right kind of preacher showed up for his turn in your community. So this wasn't just impactful in sort of a theoretical way. This was impactful for people who wanted to live out the gospel but were struggling to do it because of these rules and restrictions that were put on them. Now in this this period of time, it wasn't just uh, ministers who became concerned about this. There were lay people, um, circuit riding preachers, all kinds of people. It was just sort of a, a period maybe of an awakening that people began looking in scripture and trying to figure out how these denominations came to be and how they fit in Jesus' plan. 
And what they really came to was the, that chapter of John 17 and some of those verses. And so I'm going to read that again, which is John 17:21. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. Now, as Brian said, this happened on the Thursday before Jesus would be crucified. He had already gathered his followers. They had had, um, he had washed their feet, and they'd had a meal together. He had instituted the communion memorial, and now he has this prayer. And as part of that prayer, he specifically says, God, I'm not just praying for these 11 men in the room. I'm praying for everyone who will believe because of these 11 men in this room. So essentially, he states this prayer, and it's from there forward. For every believer, this is his prayer for each one of us. Now, as they examined this prayer, they found several things in it that were running counter to where they were with all these denominations and groupings. The first was that it speaks of Christ's authority. Jesus clearly shows that he is one with God, and he carries that same authority and that same power that God does. Based on that authority that he's carrying, it's the basis for our Christian unity. He wants us, all the Christians in the world, to be as close together as he and God are. That relationship that they've had eternally, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's his desire for all of us, that we live in that tight of unity. And it's not just because it feels good to us. It's not just because it helps us grow in our faith. The third point they found is that that's what powers world evangelism. Jesus says what brings people to know me, to want to know me, it isn't buildings or books. It's none of that. It's when they watch our lives. When they see us living out his love in unity, that's what draws people to him. And that's what we want is to draw people to him. So multiple scholars, multiple denominations, people were finding this truth and really looking hard at it. And that laid the foundation for the Restoration Movement. Now you also heard me call it the Stone-Campbell Movement. And that's another name we go by. Stone and the Campbells were three men who were um, instrumental in starting this movement, especially in the United States. We're going to talk real briefly about each of them. Uh, Barton Stone was born in America. He was born in the late 1700s. He was Presbyterian, and when the time came that um, he was going to be ordained as a minister, he really began to struggle with that idea of, I have to swear allegiance to a creed. It's not just enough what I believe. I have to swear allegiance to this creed. And he worked with his mentors. He prayed over it. And when the time came for him to be ordained, when he was supposed to swear allegiance to the creed, what he actually said is he, he would pledge to it in so much as I see it consistent with the word of God. So he rightly set the word of God above this man-made creed. He continued to live that out. And eventually it led to a parting of the ways between him and the Presbyterian church since he placed scripture above that creed. Moving on to the Campbells. Thomas Campbell was born in Ireland about that same time in the late 1700s. Um, he was ordained in the Scottish Seceder Presbyterian Church. Now, Seceder is one of those things. There were three different issues that were sort of dividing the Presbyterian Church in Scotland at the time. And so the Seceder, that was one of those little issues, and that's what he was ordained into. And he quickly chafed under that stricture of not being able to worship with other people. He started a school and he started a church and he found actually throughout his life and the life of his son, even as they came to the U.S., they frequently, as they moved, they'd start a school and start a church at the same time. 
So he was teaching and running this school and having a family, and he became tired. He became ill. His doctor told him he needed to move to America. He needed to come over to America for his health. And so he left his family behind in Scotland under the care of his son, Alexander, who was 18, 19 at the time. And he moved to America. And along the way, as he had that quiet time to think, and even as he came over and joined with the Presbyterian Church and started preaching, he had that time to study scripture and reflect on those divisions. And he came to this belief that our unity shouldn't be based on denominations. That was not what God wanted for us. Well, he's over here in America for a couple years, and he sends for his family. He's, he's settled, and he's ready for them to come. So Alexander and the family come over. Now, Alexander's been going to college and studying and running the school for his father. And at the same time, he's been engaged in that same effort of looking at how the denominations have torn people apart and how they're putting restrictions on people's faith. And he's also come to this belief that based on Jesus' prayer for unity— we need to let go of those denominations. Now, I like this picture. It's almost like a TV show or something. You've got the son coming over on the ship from Ireland, from Scotland, and he's nervous because he's going to tell his dad who raised him, who brought him up in this faith, Dad, I don't quite follow that anymore. And then you've got Thomas, and he's riding his horse to meet his family at the docks, and he knows he's going to have to tell his son, I know I raised you in this faith. I know that I taught you this, but I've studied scripture, and I've come to a new understanding. So they both come, and they've both talked and, and written about being anxious about this meeting, but when they finally get together and they spend the time uh, coming back home, they're able to realize that they've come to this same conclusion about Christian unity and the need to do away with all this denominational division. And they were able to share that and they began working together. Now, along the way, in about 1824, the Stone and Campbell movements kind of joined up, and that's why we use that terminology, the Stone-Campbell movement or the Restoration movement. And that's an important word, restoration. They weren't looking to be a reformer like Martin Luther. They were looking really to restore what was in Scripture, not start a new church, but restore believers to that common unity that Jesus talks about. And along the way, the time came that they needed a written document. Not like a creed that they would swear to, but a written document that they would use. They could send it out in advance. Um, people could read it. They could send it to the churches, leave it behind, that really shared what all they believed and what all they had found to be important. We're going to look at three of them real quickly, and you'll see that they tie closely back to John 17. So the first, there were about 13 of these propositions. The first one says that the church of Christ upon earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. That's old-fashioned language, but it goes right back to the heart of John 17. We're one church. One of the ways that we kind of distill that, um, because they took some of this uh, more lengthy language and, and have some... Uh, saying some things that we state as our beliefs um, is that there's unity in truth. And that's our truth where we find unity, that the church of Jesus is one as he designed it. One of the other propositions said that in order to this, nothing ought to be inculcated upon Christians as articles of faith. And that's some old-fashioned language we don't inculcate a whole lot these days. But what he's trying to say is that there's nothing besides Scripture. There's nothing to be laid on a Christian to come to faith, to come to salvation. No other creeds, no other sayings, no denominational membership. It's just 
scripture, God's inspired word that he's left behind for us. One of the ways that they shortened that down so they didn't have to say inculcate all the time was that where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we're silent. The last one I want to share, again, speaks to unity, and, and I think it really speaks to their heart how, how deeply they felt about this need for unity and to not be divided. It's Proposition 10, and it says, That division among Christians is a horrid evil. It's fraught with many evils. It's anti-Christian as it destroys the visible unity of the body of Christ. And you see them again restating that passage from John 17. It's our unity that not only binds us, it's our unity that lets us share God's message to the world. Now surprisingly, sadly, for a church that was started on unity, the time came where there was division. And it actually kind of started with that phrase about where the scriptures speak, we speak, and where they're silent. Well, what do you do with that? When it's silent, does that mean it's up to us to choose? Or when it's silent, does that mean we should stay away from that? And people began to look at that, and especially around some particular issues. One was around having instrumental music. It wasn't spoken of in Scripture, and so that's kind of a place where we have liberty. But if it's not there, maybe we should stay away from it. Another issue came around organizations because quickly they were having conventions. It's not new to us. They were already having conventions and meetings and gatherings, associations that would bind themselves together at a higher level than local congregations. And part of that was for sending out missionaries. But it became a concern to some people that it was heading in the wrong direction. And the third issue they struggled with was having um, salaried ministers, ministers on staff. It's not something you see in scripture. Um, Paul supported himself as a tent maker and he took free will offerings, but didn't have staff employees like we did now. And the initial uh, founders, like Stone and the Campbells, they actually supported themselves with other businesses. Um, So that became a concern was, were we drifting a little too far when we had paid ministerial staff? And so this group moved themselves away from that center sort of restoration movement. We know them today as Churches of Christ. You may hear them called Churches of Christ Non-Instrumental. And they are with us, of course, today. On the other side, there were people who were starting to lean more towards liberal thought. And by liberal, I don't mean like politically like we do today, but that idea that you could embrace new ideas, that the truth was ever growing and expanding. And they started looking at truth as maybe something more infinite than what we had specifically in Scripture. And so they wanted to add on to that and have some flexibility about their beliefs to take on new ideas as society changed and to integrate those ideas into their church. And so they moved a little more away from that central uh, restoration movement. We had them today. They're uh, Christian Church's Disciple of Christ. If you see that wording, they also um, they have an emblem with a chalice on it, and which speaks to the things we still hold in common between those three groups, because we still have the unity around some essential beliefs. So that's kind of how we got to where we are today, quickly. <laughs> but if we look at where we are today, what does that mean for us? So one of the other sayings that came out of this time was that in essentials, we have unity, and in opinion, we have liberty, but in all things, we have love.
and we still cling to that. So the essentials we have, you can find them on our website. You can click up at the top, and there's a list of the things that we believe. We believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus came to earth bodily, that he lived a sinless life and died for us. We believe that we're all created in the image of God, that we've separated ourselves from God by our sins, and that the path back is that redeeming sacrifice of Jesus. We practice baptism by immersion, and we practice an open communion. And even though we have this division among us, those are beliefs that are held by all three branches of the restoration movement. We still hold those essentials in common. When you look at, uh, in opinions, liberty, I think that you can look around and see how much liberty we have within the restoration movement. Some of us meet in movie theaters, and some of us meet in schools. Some of us have a very traditional building. We have different music. We use hymns and different instruments in different places, because all of those things are matters of opinion. They're matters of liberty, and we can make our own choices, what fits for our congregation, what fits for our area and for our time. And finally, in all things, we have love. We have those essentials, but as we share them, we share them not to make ourselves right. We share them in love for other people. We want them to know those essentials. As we choose what our options are, those are also done in love. We've talked about ways that we're sharing our love as a congregation. We have it internally through things like our meal train or even just the bowl of soup that shows up on your door when you're sick. We share them in our community with things like the backpacks and Sparrow's Nest, the food pantry. We share our love globally with things like the trip to Haiti and the shoe boxes, the missionaries we support across the world. But hopefully when people look at us as part of this restoration movement, they see that we've restored the desire to share God's love with the world, to share that saving grace that we want them all to know. And that's our heritage that we have today. As Brian comes back, I'd like to invite you. This was really quick. If you have other questions, I'd love to talk with you and answer those. I may not know the answer. If I don't, I'm, I love to study. So why else would I be doing this? So if you have those kinds of questions, I'd love to hear them and, and help you answer them. If you have questions about those essentials and questions about the love that we share and that we want you to know, we'd love to take those questions as well. And I'm sure Brian, the elders, their wives, we'd all be happy to talk with you about those things. That was great. And that was right there in a nutshell. You just got a college level course on where we came from. And it's one of the things that I feel very thankful for because uh, when my family started going to church and I started learning about Jesus, I learned about Jesus in a restoration movement church. And one of the values that Ginger talked about is so important is we go to the Bible because we believe the Bible is the word of God to us. And we always think that, uh, one way that was expressed to me was that a river is purest at its source. So if you want to know what God intended the church to be, you look at the source, you look at the Bible. We believe the Bible Bible is a true representation of Jesus' words and his teaching through him and through the apostles and through what was written. And so I've, I just, I'm very thankful to have been brought up in a church that says, we're not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. We're just going to say what the Bible says is what we're going to do. So I've grown up my whole life and in my ministry just teaching the Bible. And I've always found Christians were in other places. And here's the thing that I want you to think about. When God looks at the world and looks at the people who are currently alive on the planet, do you think that he sees the divisions and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians? And the cat, or does he just see his family? 
his family who were doing this to each other, turning back to back to each other. I remember several years ago, I had um, I lived in a very beautiful place. I lived in East Tennessee, and I backpacked and hiked a lot up in the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and go up on the Appalachian Trail. And I would invite other ministers and youth ministers in town to go with me. I invited a guy from a, uh, the denomination of Mary, but I think he was Baptist. And we, we drove up to Roan Mountain, and we hiked up to Carver's Gap, and we hiked way up in there. It was just beautiful. And he came back to the car, and he had a great experience. And he said, you know, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm like, what, hiking? He said, no, hanging around with you. You know, exactly what Ginger is talking about. In the 20th century at that time, that was still going on. But but it, it was like an aha moment to him because we talked a lot. We talked about just normal, we talked about church stuff, and we talked about just life. He said, you are obviously every much a Christian as I am. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what it's about. Just trying to, because, one, if you say Jesus is Lord, I believe you. If you are following and trusting Jesus, great. The big thing we should be focusing on is all the people who don't yet know that Jesus loves them and that God wants them into their family. And if we work together, we could get this thing done, right? So that's one thing that's very important to us here at Connection, that we agree to disagree. You know, there's essential things that we can't, I can't go with you. If you say that there's multiple gods, I can't go there with you. You know, you're no longer a Christian if you feel that way. But there's very few things that Christians must agree on. There's a whole lot of things that we can agree to disagree on. But in everything, we ought to love each other so that what Jesus prayed for will happen, that the world will be brought to God. So I hope that that value is something that you would embrace as well. And I hope as I've talked about this, that maybe if, if you're not a part of God's family, that you just, today would be a day you would want to do that. I want to share something with you as I close out. Ray Steadman once wrote, for, wrote this in a book called A Prayer for Unity. He said it's simply hogwash to speak of loving another Christian to whom you will not speak. There must be contact, the willingness to talk, no aloofness, no withdrawal from each other. Are you ready now to say, in order to reach the world around us, Lord, teach me to give up my prejudices, these separations, this withdrawal, these sub-Christian attitudes towards my fellow brethren in Christ, and make me willing to love them and show it for Christ's sake? And that's where I want us all to be. Would you pray with me now? Father, I want to thank you that you have shown us so much love. You, you sent Jesus. Jesus, you came into this world that was so broken and alienated from you and alienated from each other. And you've brought us love and you've brought us together into a family. And I thank you that you're teaching us how to do the next right thing. I thank you that you have loved this particular church connection. And I've, I see it obviously in the love that we have for each other. And I do ask, Father, that every week and every day we would keep our eyes open for people who are not yet a part of your family that are in our world, that are living next to us or working with us or going to school with us, that we can be inviting and that they could experience that love and the belonging and acceptance that you offer us through Jesus. And I pray that Connection Christian Church will be a place where that unity spreads out from. And that Darden Prairie would just be a very difficult place to go to hell from because there's just too many Christians working so hard to invite people in. Father, I thank you for all that you're doing in my life and all these people's lives. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.